0: Thank you, choir. Such a good time of worship. If you would go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter four, hold your spot there. Uh, we did have a baptism as well in the first service. Uh, Zachary Stanford, uh, eight years old, was baptized by Jeremy, our children's pastor, after he placed his faith in Jesus. And uh, just an exciting first service. Looking forward to what God will do in this service as well. And uh, John chapter four, hold your spot there. We're not going to move through that passage of scripture. In fact, today is a little bit different. We're not really going to focus on just one passage in particular. We're going to move through just a few, kind of as an intro to the new message series that we're kicking off today. I'll share a little bit more about that here in just a second. So I want you to think through for just a moment uh, in your mind. Don't answer out loud, but just think through who would you say is the most influential person that has ever walked this earth? Now, I understand where we are, and I understand the name probably that just went through, went through your mind, and that's interesting in and of itself, that, that you almost have to say, other than Jesus, who is the most influential person who has ever walked this earth? Now, I don't assume that everybody in this room is going to say Jesus. I mean, I, I, would, I would hope so, but I'm not going to assume everyone would say that. Many of you do without even giving a second thought to it because you've known him for so long, right? You're just absolutely convinced. Others of you, you've you've never chosen to follow him. You're kind of checking it out, which is awesome. This is a good place to come if you're checking that out. But you're thinking through, what does it mean to know God? Is this something I'm even ready for? Am I convinced yet? So you may drop another name into there. In, in fact, whenever you look at, at, at um, uh, sources outside of the local church, if you were to ask that question, who is the most influential person who's ever walked this earth? You're gonna have a range of answers. I mean, there are gonna be a variety of answers. That are going to come out. Uh, there was one fella um, who uh, who wrote a book actually, and a lot of this is in the book that he wrote. But he's an author. His name's Michael Hart. He put together his understanding of the most influential people who've ever walked this earth, and from his perspective, Jesus comes in third right? So he made the top three. He didn't necessarily make the top, and it's kind of interesting. The first person that he has is Muhammad, and the second person is Isaac Newton, which I think is especially kind of comical because apparently the one who actually created the concept of gravity comes in just behind the guy who discovered it. So uh, at least in author Michael Hart's perspective. So there was another source, uh, CEO Magazine, I believe it was a a website article that was put out. Uh, They put out Jesus, again, also third, uh, this time behind. Aristotle and Plato but Time Magazine believe it or not they got it right they had Jesus as first when you look at the most influential people who have ever walked this earth so honestly when you ask that to a people to a group of people in a church I mean you really do have to say other than Jesus because so many of us are convinced uh, of, of the fact that he is truly the most influential person who has ever walked this earth. And we have evidence of what went on during his time when he walked this earth. We're going to get to that again as well in just a second. But today we're starting a brand new series called Jesus come and see, and here's a little bit of the backstory to that. I was thinking a while back, three or four weeks ago, just about putting together somewhat of a biography, if we could do that, a biography of Jesus, what would that look like? Not just quoting Bible verses, as important as that is, but really putting together a biography. In the same way you would read a biography of um, You know, just say Abraham Lincoln or Jackie Robinson or some other famous person in history. You know, you'd read a biography where it kind of goes through their early years and through the different stages of their life and and, and other components. What would that look like if we treated the Bible that way? Now, we do sort of have a biography of Jesus. They're called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, But even in there, it's not necessarily this clean-cut, super chronological, orderly account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And it doesn't cover everything things, certainly. I mean, John would say if, if we uh, tried to put into books all the works that Jesus did, even the world couldn't contain those books. So, so what would a biography of Jesus's life look like? Well, that's, that's a little of what I want to aim for in this series, is to kind of compile a, a bit of a biography about the life of Jesus. And not just regurgitating the facts, but also looking at the significance of those things. For example, when you look at Jesus' birth, what is the significance of that? What is the significance of his family dynamics? Because he was 100% human when he walked this earth. So what were the family dynamics that we know of? And what is the significance of that? And what can we learn from that as we navigate family dynamics in our own, in our own lives as well? And then you look at the other aspect of Jesus' existence, right? Right? that he's also not just 100% man, but 100% God. So what, what's the connotation of that? How do we even know that? And, and by the way, when we look at his birth, he also existed before that, his eternality. So how does that even unpack? And, and then you talk about all the things he said. Just the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5 through 7, you've got topic after topic after topic after topic, where he's talking about all these different topics. And when you look in the New Testament, especially the Gospels, You see a lot of red letters, right? Jesus said a lot of things, but how do you boil down just the heart of his message? What was his message? What was he all about? What was his mission? What drove him? What was he aiming for? And then you get to his death and his burial and his resurrection and and other components as well. That's what I want to unpack in the series. And so for you as a follower of Jesus, many of you have made that decision to give your life to Christ. Maybe you've never really looked at Jesus that way. And if somebody were to ask you, hey, 60 seconds, give me a biography of Jesus, you might get a little bit hung up a little bit after about 20, 30 seconds or so. Well, he was born in Bethlehem, and he's God, and he died, and he rose, and Uh, you you kind of get hung up there, right? So there's a lot more to tell and there's significance to it as well. But here's the other layer. At the same time, as you've looked at all these components but you've never really thought through what does a biography of Jesus look like, there are a lot of people out there who have their own ideas about Jesus. And they formulated their own opinions about Jesus and they've kind of put together in their mind a little bit of an idea of who Jesus is. And it might not necessarily add up with what we know about him from the pages of Scripture. So just a simple sermon message series that I think is going to take us all the way up to the holidays called Jesus Come and See. So I want you to take a look at John chapter 4 here. Here's where we get this this title, John chapter four, the context of this, and I won't go into a lot of detail, but it's Jesus in a conversation with a person, we call the woman at the well, we don't know her name, everyone just calls her the woman at the well, right? And so we read about her true encounter with Jesus in John chapter four, she was a woman with a past, she was a woman with past unfulfillment in her life, she looked a lot of different places to find fulfillment, there was always this missing piece in her life that she couldn't quite find, and then finally she she meets Jesus, And she realizes that he is the long-awaited Messiah, and everything changes for her. And look at what it says here in John chapter 4. Look down in verse 28. It says, so the woman, she had come to the well with a water jug, right, to draw water, the woman at the well. So the woman left her water pot, and she went into the city, and she said to the men, come, see a man who told me all the things that I've done. This is not the Christ, is it? And they went out of the city and were coming to him. It was this simple little invitation. She said, come and see. I have met a man who has changed everything for me. He, uh, everything just sort of makes sense now after this conversation with him. I think this could maybe be the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ. And she extends this invitation to the people in that city. Why don't you just come and see? Come and see for yourselves. Don't, don't rely on what I've told you. Come and see for yourselves. So they did. They came and they saw and they heard Jesus. And that city was radically changed. Many of them became followers of Jesus that day based on her testimony, but not on her testimony alone. It was because they came and they saw. And that's what I'm going to invite you to do this series is to come and see, and I hope you'll come, and I hope you'll come consistently, and I hope you'll invite people to come, especially if you have that coworker, if you have that family member, if you have that neighbor, that friend, and, and maybe they're not quite where you are right now. They haven't given their lives to Christ. In fact, maybe they're a little bit antagonistic to a degree. Uh, maybe they've got questions you can't answer, uh, but their idea of who Jesus is just really either misses the target or it falls short. Invite them. Invite them to just come and see. And what we're gonna talk about is an understanding trying to put together in 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 a very clear way, not fixing the Gospels, they don't need to be fixed, but trying to just pull out what will help us to form somewhat of a biography of Jesus, the significance of his life and the difference that he made and that he makes in the life that yields to him as Lord. There are a lot of competing ideas about Jesus specifically. For many in the culture they misrepresent him right many voices in the culture malign him many voices in the culture misquote him many in the culture will try to distance him marginalize him dismiss him and then even outright reject him more books have been written probably about jesus than any other person any other topic on the face of this earth more than likely i read one one quote that said a hundred thousand biographies in english alone written about jesus Right? He, he is literally, and this is a principle that you we can kind of begin with, he is literally the most influential person on the face of the earth who has ever walked this earth. It's Jesus. Books that have been written, not all of which have been glowing reports or accurate reports of him. I re, maybe you remember a book that was written years ago called The Da Vinci Code. later became a movie as well, Michael Brown. Just an absolute Uh, maligning and and misrepresenting and and just misinformation about who Jesus is that had very little to do with the pages of Scripture. I mean, it it, it was just a wild success, and yet it was a a complete fabrication of that author's idea of who he thought Jesus was that misses the target that the Bible sets for us ultimately. Years ago, I remember when I was in college, I was a student at the University of Georgia, and there was a movie that came out called The Last Temptation of Christ. Many movies have been written about Jesus, some that are, that are pretty well done, some that are pretty accurate. The Passion of the Christ, probably the most well-known TV series called The Chosen right now that a lot of people uh, uh, talk about specifically. Um, but there are a lot of movies that just completely miss the mark. And that movie, The Last Temptation of Christ, was just absolutely blasphemous. I mean, there were protests that came out as a result of that. Many other movies since then. We understand we can't place any emphasis on movies that come out that help us to understand who Jesus is, though there are some that are good, the Jesus film, yet another one that can't crusade for christ is put out decades and decades ago as a mission piece but so much just missed the mark of who jesus is so so so-called scholars that try to uh, um again marginalize jesus they say that uh, either he never existed or they say you can't even trust the bible of anything they actually said that they try to uh uh, just reimagine who jesus may have been and they call themselves scholars you you've got lines of people that have various ideas about jesus And what we need is just to come and see him for who he is. How do we do that? Here's another principle you may want to jot down, that the one trusted source, in fact, the only trusted source that's in existence. When we come to this person, Jesus, and try to figure out who he is, the one trusted source that tells us about Jesus is the Bible. It doesn't matter if there was a movie that was made and however many millions of dollars it may have made, made as a result. doesn't matter how many books were written or how popular those books may have possibly been. The only trusted source when we think about the person of Jesus and when we try to put together uh, somewhat of a synopsis of his existence and his birth and his death and his resurrection and his mission and his message and his conversations and his relationships, all those things, we can only gain that from the Bible. Right? That's the only trusted source. Now you can pull some stuff in from outside to a degree, but you can't trust it the way we trust the Bible. The only source that's going to be without error is going to be the pages of the Bible. That's going to be our guide as we move through this series specifically. There's a fellow named Philip Yancey who, uh, who, who has written a book, somewhat of a biography about Jesus from a Christian perspective. But there's a quote that I came across from Philip Yancey uh, in, in the Bible that, or in the book that's titled, The Jesus I Never Knew. And I want you to read this quote along with me. Again, this is his perspective, but I think for the most part it's pretty accurate. And he summarizes a little bit of who Jesus is. Do we have that quote we can bring up on the screen, I believe? So this is what it says. He says, the more I studied Jesus, the more difficult it became to pigeonhole him. He said little about the Roman occupation. By the way, that was the political firestorm of its day, the Roman occupation of the land of Israel. (laughs) He said little about the Roman occupation, the main topic of conversation among his countrymen, and yet he took up a whip to drive petty profiteers from the Jewish temple. He urged obedience to the Mosaic law, while acquiring the reputation as a lawbreaker. Remember, his his enemies called him a lawbreaker. He could be stabbed by sympathy for a stranger, yet turn on his best friend with the flinty rebuke, get behind me, Satan. He had uncompromising views on rich men and loose women, yet both types enjoyed his company. Two words that one could never think of applying to the Jesus of the Gospels, boring and predictable. That's the picture, and I think Philip Yancey has done a good job of capturing it that's the picture we begin to see when we piece together descriptions of Jesus from the pages of the gospel. So the, so the Bible is going to be our guide. The gospels are going to be our primary source material as we put together this somewhat of a biography of Jesus. But for us to do that, I want to just assume for a moment, now this may be wrong, but I want to assume that you are a skeptic of why we should even trust the Bible to begin with. Maybe you have heard comments from other people, why do you even trust a book? After all, it was just written by men. Maybe you've had some questions in your own heart, in your own mind, as to why can I trust what the Bible says about anything, much less Jesus himself, and yet maybe you would never admit it. I want to just give you a few reasons why, as we put together this series and this topic of looking at who Jesus is, why we can trust the Bible to begin with. One of the reasons we can trust the Bible specifically is because of the amount of manuscript evidence that we have to support the New Testament specifically. Old Testament as well, but I'm just going to talk about the New Testament. So in other words, there's this one New Testament scholar who made the comment, he said, if you take all of the existing, follow me on this, this is easier than the nine o'clock crowd because they were maybe still a little bit sleepy. You're wide awake now, so follow me on this. When, when you think about it, what we have is a, an English translation. Uh, it, it's not what Deepak Chopra would have said, the New Age so-called guru, right, where he said we have various iterations of the Bible. That's not the way this works. We have a translation of the Bible directly from the Greek for the New Testament, from the Hebrew for the Old Testament. So it's not a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. It's directly from the original language in which it was written. What we do have, however, are copies of manuscripts. There are other ancient Greek documents that also have ancient Greek manuscripts. One New Testament scholar said, he said, if you take all of the existing ancient Greek manuscripts written of the variety of authors outside of the Bible and you put them together, it'll stack up about four feet high. He said, if you take all of the existing Greek manuscripts of the Gospels, right, of the New Testament even, If you take all of the existing manuscripts, the copies from the original Greek of the New Testament, it would stack up not four feet. He said it would stack up to be a mile high. There are over 5,800 New Testament manuscripts that are in existence. Now, these aren't modern day. These are ancient manuscripts, some as close as 125 to 150 years of the events that they describe. And so you would have Paul sit down and write 13 of the New Testament letters, at least 13. Some may say 14 if you, if you believe he wrote Hebrews. So We don't have any of the existing letters that Paul wrote in his hand, right? But we have copies, ancient manuscript copies of what he wrote. When you take the 5,800 New Testament manuscripts and you lay them all out and you look at them, they give us an undeniable, trustworthy uh, uh, document that we call the New Testament, Right? More evidence. Nobody ever questions whether or not Shakespeare really wrote that play the way it's written. Nobody ever questions whether or not some of these uh, great minds of the past, right, Socrates played Aristotle. Nobody ever, ever questions, did they really say what everybody says they say? But for some reason, when it comes to the Bible, there are people standing in line that want to say, well, I don't know if we can trust what it says. Even though there is more manuscript evidence than any other work in antiquity, far more, like four feet to a mile more. That helps us to know that the Bible you hold in your lap that you just opened up 10 minutes ago is a word that we know exactly what it says, and we know that it says what was originally said because of the manuscript evidence. That's why we trust the Bible. second reason we trust the Bible is because it says it's actually from God. It says that it's His Word. Throughout the New uh, Old Testament, the prophets treated it <coughs> as God's Word. I'll just turn you to one passage of Scripture, 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. A passage some of you are real familiar with. This is just one place. There are so many others we could turn to where the Bible internally claims to be from God. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. It's inspired by God. The, the, the actual Greek wording there translates as being God-breathed. So the way the Bible treats itself is no less than God's Word. It doesn't treat it as just a document written by men, even though men did write it. It treats it as a document written by God because God wrote it. He inspired the men who wrote the pages of it that we read today. It, it testifies of itself that this is God's Word. It's not like any other book. It's not like reading Time Magazine, USA Today, or some New Testament or or, or New York Times uh, uh, bestseller. It's unlike any other document that's ever been written, a, a collection of 66 books that we put together, 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament that we call the Bible. It is unlike any other, and it claims internally to be written by God himself. Another reason we trust it is because Jesus treated it like God's Word. Now, he would have had the Old Testament But he treated the Old Testament like God's Word, and even some of the New Testament writers would treat parts of the New Testament like God's Word specifically. So when you look at these people, right, who who wrote in the pages of Scripture, Jesus and his followers treated it as God's Word. Listen to what Jesus says, John chapter 17, verse... uh, Verse 17, listen to what Jesus says. He's praying to the Father. This is called the high priestly prayer. There's a lot of red here in John 17, pretty much the whole entire chapter except a little bit of verse 1 is all red. Jesus is praying to the Father before he would be arrested and crucified. Listen to what he prays. John 17, verse 17, he says to the Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So some of the reasons that we trust that the Bible is trustworthy when it tells us about Jesus is because the manuscript evidence helps us to see exactly what it said 2000 years ago when the New Testament was written. The followers of Jesus treated it treated God's word as from God. Jesus treated uh, god 's Word as from God, and, and the Bible itself says that it 's specifically from God, yet another reason that we trust it is because the writers of the New Testament, old as well but we 're focusing on the new right now, the writers of the New Testament died for what they believed, many of them died for what they believed. Many of the early followers of Jesus died for what they believed, all eleven of the remaining disciples after Judas. Betrayed Jesus and stepped out of the picture, right? All 11 of the remaining disciples died martyrs' deaths. And I would include John in that because he died in exile uh, against his will for his faith and, and, and uh, obedience to Jesus. They died for what they wrote. They, they they never recanted. They never took a step back and said, oh, you know what? I've never believed all that. I, you know, I'm done with this. Now that you got the, now that you got the blade to my neck, you know, I, I'm going to go ahead and recant because I know none of this has been true. They didn't do that. They died. They took the sword. They took prison. They took death. Because what they wrote in the books that we read now today, 2,000 years later, that we can trust as trustworthy, they give evidence through their lives that what they wrote they believed in all the way ultimately to martyrdom in fact even beyond that many of the doubters of jesus who initially were doubters ultimately would would even write pages in scripture i mean you look at james james was a half brother of jesus we'll probably see this later in the series there was a time in jesus's ministry (laughs) when his family thought he had just absolutely lost it he had brothers and sisters they thought he had just lost it to the point to where they would show up one day and say oh try to say jesus won't you just come with us okay let's get a little out of hand won't you just come with us but the resurrection changed, radically changed, one of those half-brothers, that being James, to the point to where James would write his own book of the Bible towards the end of the New Testament. You look at Paul. Again, Paul wrote 13, maybe 14 books of the New Testament. He was not always a staunch follower of Jesus. In fact, at one point, he was, he was an enemy of Christ. He was an enemy of the gospel. Literally an enemy, locking people up, hauling them away, probably responsible for their deaths. He held the coats of those who stoned the first Christian martyr, Stephen. And yet it would be Paul when he would, in a sense, in his own way, be invited to come and see when Jesus would appear to him, who would leave He, he would leave all that he had held to and would become the greatest missionary of the gospel that he once railed against because he saw Jesus for who he was. In fact, you look at some of the other New Testament writers, Yet another line of evidence of why we can trust that the Bible is true. You've got other New Testament writers who put testimony in there that was embarrassing, honestly. You know, the, the, to me, this is one of the greatest examples of why we know we can trust the Bible was because of the embarrassing testimony of some of those who wrote it. For example, you got Peter who wrote First Peter, Second Peter, Peter who was a leader of the early church, Peter who was responsible for preaching the message in Acts chapter 2 where 3,000 people got saved at one time and the church went from about 120 in Jerusalem to about 3,000 globally, 3,000 plus. Peter preached that message, Right? And yet, you would think, if the Bible was just a book written by men, somewhere along there, with his influence, with his pull, right, with his stature, Peter could have come up to one of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and could have said, hey, you know, all that stuff in there, remember remember that time when I I denied knowing Jesus, remember that? Just make sure you don't put that in your book, okay? I hear you're writing a little book about Jesus. Oh, Peter, you mean that time when you denied him not once, twice, but three times? Yeah, 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 those times. Just leave that part out, will you? You know what, the fact, if it was me writing a book and I'm in it, I'm not putting all the stuff that I don't want you guys to know about, okay? I'm not putting my worst moments. It's like social media, we always put our best, we always put the recipe that worked with pictures, right? Not the 10 times that it failed and you about burned the kitchen down, right? Those don't go on Facebook. Those don't go on social media. You don't put the pictures of little Johnny who struck out eight times in a row before he hit the home run that makes it on social media. That one gets on there. You don't put the bad stuff. You always put the good stuff. One of the ways we know that that the New Testament, and the Old Testament as well, but the New Testament is a book not just written by men. It's written by God. It's because of the embarrassing testimony that's in there, that's there, not because they wanted it there. It's because God wrote the book, and he said this is going in. And it helps us to relate because we have our own moments that aren't so good, right? Yet another reason we can trust the New Testament, specifically we're looking at, is because of the fact that there are eyewitness accounts, one after the other, after the other, after the other, after the other. Luke, when he wrote, uh, when he wrote the book of Acts, you know, Luke wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts. It's kind of a part one, part two kind of a thing. And when he wrote in the book of Acts, there are eighty four historically verifiable details in the book of Acts, just from Acts 13 to the end, Acts 28. 84 historically accurate, verifiable details that he includes in the book that he wrote, the book of Acts. You look in the Gospel of John, John himself would put 59 specific, either historically verified or historically probable. Maybe it's a town that hasn't been rediscovered yet in 2,000 years 59 historically verified or historically probable details that he includes just in the Gospel of John. This, the, the Gospels were written by eyewitnesses. Luke himself says, I'm setting out to put together an account that is going to pull together everything the best I can so that you can see Jesus for who he is. And it's written by eyewitness accounts specifically, and then yet there's some maybe maybe you know skeptics that you are or that you know or that you work with or maybe you're one of them that says, well yeah that's great. The Bible testifies to be God's word. What what does that matter? And that's just kind of circular. Well, you put all of this together, and then on top of it, you look outside the pages of Scripture. And there are at least 10 extra biblical sources. What's an extra biblical source? An extra biblical source means it's a writer, typically a historical writer, that we don't find in Scripture. We don't see their name. They didn't write a book of the Bible. There are at least 10 extra biblical sources within 150 years of the events of the New Testament. I'm talking right up on it. Before legend and myth could be fabricated, within 150 years, 10 extra-biblical sources, men like Josephus, uh, uh, historians like Thallus, others as well, 10 extra-biblical sources within 150 years of the events of the New Testament, whose testimony corroborates perfectly with the events of the New Testament. And you put all that together, and what you have is unmistakable evidence, not opinion, Not like somebody who wrote a book, called it The Da Vinci Code, made a movie about it, got rich off of it, off of stuff that he dreamed up and fabricated as some conspiracy theory. No, this is evidence, right? That the book you hold in your lap is a book that you can trust. And it's the only source, let's circle this back where we started, it's the only reliable source that tells us what we need to know about this person, Jesus. The only source is the Bible itself principle number three we have all the evidence we need to know the truth about jesus all of it right here now he's not going to answer every question the bible's not going to tell you why you went through that hardship 10 years ago the bible's not going to answer why you made some of the choices that you made back in the past it's not going to answer why you've suffered the way that you have it's not going to give you every single answer to every single question but what it provides for us is everything we need to know regarding the truth about who Jesus is so that when we formulate somewhat of a biography around his life from the pages of scripture not only can we trust it because it came from the bible but also we know that it's their significance to it that directs our next steps so that we can live in a way that he lived, so that we can walk in the manner that he walked, so that we can embody the, th- the qualities that he embodied when he walked this earth, and so that we can ultimately fulfill and even further the mission and the message that he ultimately died for and rose again to validate. See, it all circles back to us. There's a response. Jesus, the name given, by the angel Gabriel before he was born. In the Hebrew means Yahweh saves, reflection of the work he would do on the cross. Christ, not a name but a title. In the Greek specifically, it's a translation of the Hebrew word for Messiah. It translates Jesus, which we translate in the English as Jesus. It's a title of chosen one, Messiah, anointed one. Never a more influential person that ever walked this earth. Fully God, fully man, without beginning, without end. Who came and preached a message. Who came and accomplished a mission. Who came and accomplished salvation for all that would come to him on his terms through his death and his resurrection. And who alone can give eternal life. He's the only person in history that operates in all three tenses. He always was. None of us can say that about ourselves. He always was because he's eternal, he's God. He is, he's alive, and he's active because he resurrected from the dead. And he always will be Savior, God, and Lord. He's the cornerstone of the whole building of life. He's the, he's the thread that runs through the tapestry of history, right? Right? He is the most important figure, whoever walked this earth. He's he's the bread, as he speaks of in the Gospel of John, the only one who can fully satisfy. He's the light of the world, the only one who can shine the light of eternal life into the darkness of sin. He is Savior, he is Lord, he is God. It is only his name, Acts 4:12 says, by which we can be saved. There is no other name like his, and it even says, Paul tells us, that at the name of Jesus, one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess of every single person who's ever lived, both the greatest and the worst, those who are the most righteous and those that are the most wicked will bow and, and, and acknowledge that he alone is Lord and God, right? There is no other name like him specifically. And yet every single day there are people who choose to marginalize him, who choose to try to negate him, and who choose to dismiss him and ultimately miss him as a result. And all along there's this invitation that says just simply, come and see. John chapter 5 we see one example of those who would miss Jesus. It not only happens today but it happened back when he walked this earth as well. In John chapter 5 verse 37 he's speaking and he says, the father who sent me has borne witness of me. You've neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You don't have his word abiding in you for you do not believe him who sent whom he sent. Listen to this, verse 39, John chapter five. You search the scriptures, he says to the Jews that opposed him. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that bear witness of me and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. The invitation is just come and see. And by his own lips, he says, when we come and see and respond the way we should, It's only there that we find life in a way that only he can ultimately give it. He's the most influential figure that ever walked this earth. The Bible is the only source that gives us information about him, and yet it gives us everything we need to make a conscious decision about what we're going to do with this person, Jesus Christ. But the million-dollar question, the million-dollar question that's undergirding all of this is do you know him? not about him but do you know him because everything that he did was not just for the glory of god but it was so that fallen people like us can have a relationship with the god who made us and no matter how many facts we know about him the million dollar question has always been do we know him specifically john 19:10 the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. C.S. Lewis is probably many would say the greatest theological mind of the 20th century. He was not always a follower of Jesus. In fact, he was an atheist up through his 20s. He then rejected atheism for theism, right? The the belief in a god, right? That god exists. But it was then after that, still somewhat as a young man, I think in his 30s, that he not just embraced theism, but he literally embraced the person of Jesus, placing his faith in Christ and had a, began a relationship with God. C.S. Lewis would go on to write multiple volumes of Christian work that's still being read today, Mere Christianity probably being the, the most well-known. And again, many would say the greatest theological mind of the 20th century. It's one quote from the, from the book Mere Christianity that to me I've used before, and it is just perhaps one of the most powerful quotes, if not the most powerful that I've ever read of his. And I think it's this that we'll use to bring everything to a close today at this invitation to come and see. Lewis writes a Mere Christianity, and this is not on the, on the screen, so just listen as I read. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. And you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you could fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let, not, let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. See, we have to decide who this Jesus is. Because if he is truly God as he claimed to be, and the only way to a relationship with God, and the only way to forgiveness and eternal life in heaven... And if he's given us a mandate by which to live and a mission that we are called to follow, and if he has dictated to us in the pages of the word that he wrote how we are to live our lives, not only embodying the message of the gospel, but pursuing those who don't know him as well, right? then we have to decide, are we going to follow him or are we going to not? And so the simple invitation is the same one that it always has been. And it started in the New Testament with the woman at the well and it extends still to us to just simply come and see. I and mean, We see him for who he is based on what he tells us in his word. My hope is that your life and my life and the life of this church will be radically changed as he's done in the lives of people throughout history. Not that we come to just another Sunday and check a box and go out unchanged, having learned another new fact here or there, but that it will radically change the way we live because we see him for who he is. God, who took on flesh to dwell among us, to show us the way to the Father, of how to have life eternal and how to live in a way that puts him on display and shares him with others to his glory alone. Come and see. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that you've not only given but that you've preserved. Because, Lord, in a world that is not lacking for opinions about you and who you are, in a world where you are often maligned and misquoted, where there is so much misinformation about you, where it seems as every Christmas and every Easter there's yet another special made-for-TV program or article that comes out filled with so much stuff that cannot be validated by Scripture, we thank you that you give us your word that is backed by evidence of why we can trust it, that tells us exactly who you are, Jesus. And we thank you that you don't call us to just come and and gaze from a distance, to just learn some interesting pieces of info about who you are and the life you lived on this earth, but that you call us to come and and to gaze upon you and to see you for who you are so that our lives can be changed like those early followers' lives were changed. 120 followers in Jerusalem to 3,000 ultimately that were brought into the kingdom of God just a matter of, of, of days, and, uh, of, of just 10 days later. And how we read in the pages of the New Testament how the gospel exploded through that region of the world. And even still today, now 2,000 years later, it made it to us to where we began a relationship with you, God. And we hear stories of other places and other parts of the globe. Cuba and in third world nations and underground churches and parts of the world where Christians will be martyred if their culture knows that they're followers of Jesus. And the gospel continues to explode. Because your life was the most influential life that ever walked this earth. And yet still today, you are alive and you are well and you are changing hearts of those who come to you in repentance and faith. And Lord, we get to be a part of that. We get to be a part of a group called the church that you describe as the body of Christ. where we get to know you and we get to fellowship with you. We have someone to turn to when our heart breaks because you love us and you hear us. We have someone to give us direction whenever the the darkness seems to creep in. We we, we have someone who who hears our prayers and comforts our hearts and gives us peace and, and meets the needs of our lives because you're the good shepherd. When all is said and done, you've got a home waiting for us. But until then, God, we get the privilege of being able to live for you and to proclaim you together. So, Lord, I pray for us to come and see, not in some quirky, new-age way, but in a way that just reflects your word, but maybe in a way we've missed. And God, may we be faithful to invite others to come and see as well, because you, Jesus, are God who died and rose for us so that all who turn from sin and invite you to forgive and take over, even right now in this moment, invite you to take over, to save them, to be their Lord and Savior, that you'll do just that. Lord, thank you for the invitation to come and see. Help us to take you up on the offer. For it's in Jesus' name.